the new Indian is in Moscow, the vibrant capital city of Russia. And we have the honor of having with us Igor Istomin, one of the most well-known intellectuals of Russia. In fact, he is a member of one of the most prestigious think tanks, Valdai Club of Russia. So I'm going to begin this conversation with him right here in the Moscow city in this beautiful weather when the rain is drizzling and you are watching us. Welcome to Reason. What do you think about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting which is being held in Samarkand right now where President Putin, Prime Minister Narendra Modi and Chinese President Xi Jinping are participating in this meeting. What is really happening in the context that there's a war going on in Ukraine? Well, I think that this current meeting is quite important. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization is a very important body overall where very major non-Western powers are coming together as you mentioned already, China, India, Russia, obviously, but also Turkey, for example. Uh, but this time, it is especially important because it happens at the backdrop of a series of conflicts and it provides an opportunity for the first-hand negotiations, not only on the situation in Ukraine, but also on the other hotspots, like something that we see right now in Central Asia, and on the Caucasus. So I think there are a lot of bilaterals going on, a lot of uh, meetings on the sidelines, and they could be very important for the development, not of just one conflict, but of several conflicts in this Eurasian area. So are you really saying that the world right now is divided into two blocks? One is the block which is led by the West, NATO on the one hand, and uh, China, Russia, India, on the other hand, because it seems like they, for example, neither India nor China criticized Russia's special operation in Ukraine. In fact, India, for example, abstained from all the votes at the United Nations against Russia. China has also abstained. Are we saying that the world is divided into two blocks? I think there is an ongoing trend going in this direction. And obviously, there are incentives to present this as such as such situation. And I think if you listen, to, for example, to the rhetoric of the American decision makers, of the US president and, and his team, they often talk about the division of the world in black and white, in between, for example, democracies and non-democracies. Uh, I still think that we are not yet there at this kind of polarization. And I think that from the Russian perspective, for example, it wouldn't be helpful for this polarization to happen worldwide. You mentioned NATO and NATO-Russia confrontation by this time. Previously, it was merely tensions, but we now can say about the full-fledged confrontation is something which divides Europe and makes the situation in Europe quite insecure. We also see, I think, the attempts uh, to create these divisions also in other regions. For example, in Asia, where there are such uh, institutions created like AUKUS, 
right, which is also trying moving us into the direction of this bipolarity, so to say. I would say that the Russian foreign policy traditionally was to avoid this and to try to build inclusive institutions. Uh, that was the proposal, for example, brought by the Russian leadership in Europe in the 2000s as before in the 90s. There was the proposal, for example, of the Treaty on European Security, and it was neglected. But at what point, uh, in fact, at one point, Russia wanted to be part of NATO. Wasn't it true? Uh, I would say it was on several points, uh, and it was one of the ways how Russia was seeking to create this kind of all European security architecture. There were several different proposals. If you go back to the 90s, we could remember about the creation of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which didn't become a really major security institution in the region, despite the early promises and despite expectations by Russia. We had an attempt to create a Russia-NATO Council in 2002, which would bring all the major players in Europe together. But they never never realized this. Uh, this so tell me why, why is NATO led by the United States of America so opposed to having Russia as part of the Western Bloc? I mean, there are ethnic, cultural, historical, geographical reasons for similarity and commonality between Russia and Europe. Why is Russia being treated so differently? Well, I think there are a number of reasons, and I think the two major ones. Uh, one was that the basic premise of NATO and of the Western community more generally uh, is based on the acceptance of at least informal U.S. leadership, which Russia maybe was considering in the early 90s, but never really acknowledged and never really came to this kind of position of acknowledging the U.S. as the dominant player. And the second... How, how, how should have Russia accepted or acknowledged that U.S. is the most powerful country in the world and the biggest superpower in the world? What should have Russia done to acknowledge it? Well, it was challenging the U.S. and, you know, opposing the U.S. policies which it viewed counterproductive to the European and global stability. For example, it opposed its operation on the Balkans, including the war in Yugoslavia in 1999. It opposed the war in Iraq. It was very dissatisfied with the Western interpretation of the UN Security Council resolution on Libya in 2011. So it, and we see that on many occasions the Western military operations led to the instability. For example, Libya is a very uh, clear point on that. There is still ongoing civil war up for today. So Russia was opposing this, and this was, in a way, interpreted as disagreement with the U.S. leadership, as questioning the U.S. leadership. But I also want to mention that the other, I think, important factor why it wasn't possible is that, in a sense, the Western unity requires some kind of external player to unite against. And I think Russia plays this uh, role of significant other, which kind of brings the West together to some sense. The discriminatory other. 
Now tell me, given the situation in Ukraine, NATO is pumping in money as well as weapons. And uh, it seems that there isn't really a headway either from their side or from Russian side. We are seeing some kind of a stalemate. For example, in Kharkiv, uh, it seems that there is a retreat of Russian troops. And we are also seeing that Joe Biden, Ursula von der Leyen, their statements indicate that they are not going to relent. They are persistent with the approach that they have taken on Ukraine. Where is this war really going? I really think that this could be a quite protracted conflict uh, for quite some time. Uh, and uh, we also see uh, that part of the reasons is that also on the Russian side, there is this, um, this kind of attitude that it is in no rush to achieve its final objectives. So what is the final objective of Russia? Well, it was uh, mentioned on the February 24th and repeated quite several times. And I think there are two main baskets of objectives, once again. Sorry for being okay, here sure. too. First is the recognition of uh, some of the realities that emerged in the 2000, st starting from 2014, like the uh, sovereignty of Donbass, like the uh, Crimea being part of uh, Russian Federation. And the second, I think it is directed not only to Ukraine, but more generally to the West, is to accept Russian security interests and kind of providing the guarantees for the Russian security. Uh, but in pursuing these goals, Russian leadership is communicating that it is also doesn't want to escalate the conflict more and it wants to preserve the human lives, both lives of the civilians and of the Russian troops participating in the current hostilities. So this also puts a limit on the kind of amount of uh, and the scope of the military power which is applied currently by Russia. You're saying that this is going to be a long war and uh this will continue because Russia doesn't seem to be in a hurry. But if you look at the criticism that is coming out from the Western media, in fact, a lot of uh, analysts in the West are saying that this is going to push Russia back by 30 years. They're saying that Russian economy is affected by the US sanctions, by the Western sanctions, and it's going to hurt Russian economy more. So can Russia really sustain for a very long time in this war. Especially in this kind of conflicts, in, in this kind of tense situations, there is a lot of kind of mutual demonization and maybe jubilation of yourself going on. And we indeed see in the Western media a lot of talking that, you know, Russia is weakening and it is declining. But I think it also reflects some uh, more general and more long-term interpretation of where Russia is going. We heard about that Russia was declining for the last 20 years, you know, in the Western media, if you believe it. And on the other hand, I could say that in Russia, there is a lot of talking that these sanctions imposed by the West, they are hurting the West much more, and they are kind of creating a lot of uh, dissatisfaction within the public in Europe, for example and that there are problems for industries, there are problems for ordinary people with the lack of energy, for example, with the energy prices going up and with more general consequences of sanctions. I still think that we shouldn't 
underestimate the, reliance, uh, the resilience either of Russia or of the West. And in fact, once we are in this kind of con confrontational relations, the sides tend to endure much more hardships than it was uh, suggested. So I think we need to acknowledge that there are losses and there are uh, problems on, on the But if you, see, if you see the military-industrial complex of America, they are actually uh, earning a lot out of this war. They are selling weapons to Ukraine. They are also selling weapons to Europe. And uh, the biggest companies, military companies in the US are profiting from this war. At the same time, the American energy sector is also profiting from this war. So why would you say that America's you know, America is America is getting affected by this. Yes, I um, the the issue with Europe seems to be uh, in the same lines as you're saying that Europe is getting affected economically. But if you look at what Ursula von der Leyen has said just yesterday, it looks like they do have a plan for the winter. They are saying that they will. Uh, sail through this winter, they have enough reserves and they have enough uh, economy to basically run through. No, I do agree with what you said and I, what I was kind of finishing my uh, previous answer is that I think on both sides sometimes overestimate the effect on Russia or on the west of the current uh, situation. And that's why I'm, uh, I'm kind of concerned that the conflict could prolong for quite some time. I think that indeed there are some groups that are benefiting from the military confrontation. That happens all the time. And, and I mean, in every war you have somebody or who is benefiting. Now tell me, why is Europe doing this? Because Europe is clearly getting affected. We are seeing that energy prices have gone up drastically in Europe. We also know that Europe is dependent on Russia for energy. So why do you think Europe is doing this to harm itself? Well, I think there are a variety of reasons within Europe. And I, I would say Europe is not a, a single whole. There are different parts of Europe. There are parts of Europe which are traditionally hostile to Russia. These are primarily the Eastern Europe, for example, countries. And they are also acquiring a sense of importance in the current confrontation. Uh, and they are kind of at the hotspot of international politics and they acquire a lot of attention and also a lot of resources uh, for, for their military, for example. Uh, so it's not, you know, that again, there are some gains for, for somebody from, from this confrontation. But, but, but generally, like common people are going to suffer. Is that what you're saying? That's what happens with most uh, tense, tense uh, confrontations, obviously. Yeah. Where do you see the role of the rest of the world in this confrontation? What is the expectation of Russia from the rest of the world in this crisis? I think it is very interesting uh, to, to talk to you uh, and to approach the Indian audiences because I think I really think that there are differences in perceptions of what's going on if we take both the Western Russia and what you say the rest of the world um, Asia Africa Latin America I think despite our real confrontation with the West we are similar at least in one respect both Russia and the US view the current what happens now in Eastern Europe 
as the existential struggle and the struggle for the world order. And I'm not sure that the rest of the world interprets the current events in the same, uh, in the same tectonic terms, so to say, as Russia and the West. I think there are a lot of other problems uh, hurting um, you know, other regions of the world, and they are more focused on this. Of course, what happens with the Western sanctions, for example, on Russia, has a major effect because Russia is a major energy producer. Russia is a major uh, producer of grain, of wheat. So I think there are economic repercussions affecting everywhere, everyone. But I'm not sure that the rest of the world has the same political interpretation and, and attach the same political significance to, to the current conflict. Are we saying that Russia and the US are at a very critical juncture in history. Are you saying this is going to be a turning point for the world, even as the rest of the world does not see it in those terms? But are you saying that this will be a major shift or major turning point for the rest, for the entire world? I would say that it is definitely a perception over here that this is the case and that basically it is often interpreted here as kind of the maybe the the last major attempt to preserve the unipolar system and to to prevent the emergence of a much more broad and much more democratic international system where there are a lot of rising powers will have more say in, in the situation. Uh, I think that there are long-term repercussions from what's going on and the one is where you started your questions uh, the effects on a broader polarization, uh, which appears primarily, I think, currently from the demands by the US and their allies to choose sides, right? Yes. I think Russia is, is pursuing a different policy. It doesn't necessarily require anyone to choose sides between it and the West. But the West certainly pushes for this choice with its uh, secondary sanctions, with its rhetoric, which is diplomatic activity. And that's how these issues, which maybe we could recognize that they are more regional than uh, global, they will transform the, the global environment and not to the stabil not necessarily to the so, more stability. So if I can if I can really interpret this correctly, then you're saying Russia is going alone, President Putin is challenging the Western imperialistic world order all by himself and he may not necessarily need allies on his side. I think that uh, it, it is not, well, you presented it uh, once again as a kind of uh, a very picture, very kind of specific picture. I think the situation is much more uh, complex. There are many who are dissatisfied with the current uh, unipolar system and there are different types of resistance to the US all over the globe. Uh, uh, but they are not necessarily linked to each other. That's what I also mentioned. And uh, uh, I wouldn't say that Russia is alone. The attempts of the West to kind of isolate Russia so far hasn't brought the fruits that they expected. And one indication of that is also, which we mentioned already, is the summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, where, as we discussed, not only Ukraine, not only re relations with the West, we also probably, one of the things that is important to do going in future is to kind of 
to learn not to think about the West when we're dealing with some of other situations and to deal with our relations which are not necessarily linked to the US and the European Union. Right? And I think that's what's happening in Shanghai Cooperation Organization right now and more generally. In terms of the kind of direct clash, indeed, I think Russia is at the forefront and, and other players maybe do not want to, to go into such kind of uh, direct uh, resistance yes, and contradiction. But uh, there are a lot of different ways how the international system is transformed at this point. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being with us at The New Indian. Hoping to do an interview with you once again, maybe in New Delhi. Thank you so much.